0: Hey, uh, my name's Pete, and it's uh, great to be together today. If you've got a Bible, let's go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians, chapter 4. And uh, let me uh, take a minute before we come to the Scriptures to uh, help get us all on the same page. Um, hopefully, if Antioch's your church, then you have a sense of what's going on around here. We're kind of in the midst of a uh, pretty significant transition. And so two weeks ago, uh, we announced that uh, Ken, our founding and lead pastor global, uh, has um, been in a process with a church up in Beaverton, a village church. And two weeks ago, they announced him as their final candidate in their search for a new senior pastor. And so this has been a search that their search committee has been... doing for the last two years, uh, interviewed over 50 uh, applicants and uh, narrowed it down to three. Uh, The search committee recommended those three to the elder board. The elder board interviewed the three and they selected Ken and uh, announced him as as their choice. So the way it works up there um, is that last Sunday then, the Weitzmans were up there and Ken got to preach and I uh, got to meet a bunch of people and, and spend some time with leaders and other people in the church. And this weekend, in fact, this morning as we speak, the next and final step in this process for Village is that the congregation gets to vote. And uh, they get to say whether or not they want to uh, call Ken to be their pastor. And so um, we really don't anticipate uh, any outcome other than a very positive and affirming yes. And uh, the leaders of that church have done a great job of bringing their congregation along. And, uh, and so um, probably later today or, uh, or sometime early this week, we'll, we'll know for sure where things stand. Um, and, uh, and things will kind of be official at that point. So, so this is an interesting time. Antioch is uh, 11 years old as a church, and Ken... Uh, was the pastor who started this church and has uh, faithfully served and pastored here for uh, for many years now, and all of our lives have been impacted by him significantly by his teaching, by his vision, by his leadership. And uh, and as we've been saying the last couple of weeks, uh, to say goodbye to him is of course incredibly sad. There's not a person here who's glad to see them move on, and uh, we will all miss them deeply and significantly, and at the same time, we celebrate that, uh, that we have in Ken and Tamra uh, leaders who are willing to listen to God and to respond in faith and obedience, even uh, if that means making a hard decision and a big change. And so, as we've said, if it's God's will for Ken and Tamra for them to uh, take this and move to Beaverton, then it's also God's will for Antioch for Ken and Tamara to go as well. And so in our DNA as a church uh, is the idea of sending, that we want to take the best of what we have and give it away. That's the core of the gospel. Even John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So an expression of God's love is a sacrificial uh, giving, ascending. And that's the God that that we are part of. That's the God we worship and serve. And so um, as, as everything rolls out, Ken and Tamara aren't leaving. They're being sent. And uh, we really do believe that and are excited for them in this, this next season. And so, um, so here's the plan. And what I want to let you know is that things are going to move somewhat quickly over the next uh, couple weeks. And uh, the elders um, here along with Ken and Tamara have kind of decided that it feels like that's probably the best way to do this, um, as they will be called up to Beaverton shortly, uh, we want to kind of give them a little bit of space for that transition and move and all that kind of stuff. And so the next couple weeks are going to be uh, significant weeks for our church. And uh, the first will be next Sunday, February 4th, is going to be uh, Ken's last sermon. And uh, we've kind of asked him to to share one last time, what uh, what is it that you would want uh, this congregation to hear or to receive uh, from you? And so, Ken's preached hundreds and hundreds of sermons here, but this is one you're not gonna wanna miss. Uh, his his last time preaching as pastor of Antioch. and then the following Sunday, February 11th, will be a send-off and celebration. And so that day, uh, we'll be here, and the service will really be about Um, honoring and celebrating and remembering uh, these last 11-plus years. And uh, we have a guest speaker, and we'll share some stories and that sort of thing. And then we're going to throw a big party afterwards and uh, invite everybody to stick around, and we'll have lunch together and uh, and a celebration time. And so that was the next two Sundays, the 4th and then the 11th. And uh, after that, then uh, you may still see uh, the Whitesmiths, especially the girls around, as they probably will be in town for another month or two. Um, so they may be with us here, which will be great. It might see them at youth group or other places. Uh, but for, in terms of leadership of our church, at that point, we'll be, we'll be moving on without Ken. And so... Um, Lent will start that following Sunday, the 18th, and uh, we'll kind of begin a seven-week journey towards Easter Sunday. So that's what's going on. That's a lot, I know. And uh, again, if you're a visitor, sorry, this is kind of a weird time for us. Um, But we, uh, as a family, are are wanting to walk through this together as much as we can. And uh, I'm well. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I'm having fun, and uh, I think I'm in the same space as all of you. You're like, yeah, I love these guys, and and gonna miss them, but uh, excited for what God has in the future. So, and you? <laughs> Good too. All right, love you, Karen. Um, so part of the weirdness of this transition time is you'll remember three weeks ago, Ken and I introed a series on Ephesians, um, and then we had a Sunday where he announced his transition. We had Jared McKenna with us last week. Next week we have these, you know, next two things. And so uh, this morning I'm going to do a sermon on Ephesians um, that will pretty much be our series on Ephesians. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) so I, I just chose one of my favorite passages that I feel like has something significant to say to us as a church uh, where we are today. And um, Ephesians is a letter by the Apostle Paul, and it's about the church. So it's a letter written to the church, really to a network of churches in Ephesus, which would be modern-day Turkey, uh, early Christian communities, and the Apostle Paul is writing to these churches about the church about the nature and the identity and the mission of the church. And so um, just to, this is my one shot in Ephesians, here's how the book works um, in, in real, real quick terms. The first three chapters are really Paul laying out the good news that we call the gospel of Jesus, In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul, with incredible joy and enthusiasm and in the most kind of grandiose language he can come up with, is trying to proclaim and announce this this news that in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, and through his life and his death and his resurrection, his ascension and the giving of the Spirit, that God has started this brand new work And that through Christ, he's reconciling or restoring all things back to himself. Paul lays this out as public truth, that this isn't just a nice idea for Christians, but this is literally the pivotal announcement of human history, that the world is changing before our eyes, and that we get to be part of it. That that restoration, that reconciliation of all things includes us as well. And so for the first three chapters, Paul's going, here is the gospel. Here's who God is and what God has done to save us. Here's who Jesus is and how his life and ministry and death and resurrection opens the door for all things to be made new. And then he moves into this picture of, and here's who the church is as the community of those who belong to Christ, and in chapter 2, paints this beautiful, vivid picture of a church that's diverse and multicultural, a church that in their context included both Jews and Gentiles, but becomes this paradigm that this isn't just for people who look like each other or came from the same background, that this new humanity, this new Uh, family that Jesus is starting looks like nothing the world has ever seen so those are the first three chapters who is God what is the gospel what's happening in the world through Jesus then as we move to chapter four there's a transition and he starts in chapter four basically beginning to tease out some of the implications of this gospel If that's true, if that's who God is and what he's up to in the world through Christ, then what does that actually mean for those of us who are in Christ? What does that mean for the church? And how would this get lived out in our daily lives? And so in chapters four, five, and six, Paul then kind of selects several examples of how does the gospel of Jesus shape the way we live when it comes to marriage? When it comes to parenting, when it comes to work, when it comes to money, when it comes to sex, when it comes to our attitude, when it comes to greed and all these kinds of different relationships and different places in life, he's saying that gospel, that good news about, about Jesus, it touches everything. That light shines on literally everything in our lives. And so in verses four, or chapters 4, 5, and 6, that's what Paul is doing. He's going, okay, you've heard the gospel, now so what? How shall we live in response to it? And so, um, let's read the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4, and uh, then we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, digging in. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, I recently received an invitation to my 20-year high school reunion. It's coming up this next summer, class of 98, and uh, heading back to Philomath, Oregon, um, where I went to high school. So if you don't know, Philomath's a little town, 4,500 or so people, timber town that uh, you would hit if you were on your way from Corvallis to the coast, then you might pass through Philomath. Otherwise, you uh, wouldn't know, to know that it was there. So that's where I came from. And um, I didn't realize until many years later that not everybody came from a place like Philomath. Um, as a timber town, one of the required classes that uh, everybody in the high school took was forestry, which included a whole unit on timber sports. And so in high school, I learned log rolling and axe throwing and, uh, and things like that. So that's where I grew up. Um, And that might explain some things about me when I have bad grammar or things like that. He's from Philomath, you'll just know. So 20 years ago, uh, I'm having a hard time wrapping my mind around that. Um, Maybe you are too. Let me show you something. So. (laughs) um, There's a few things you need to know here. Bleached hair, dog collar. 70s polyester suit from Goodwill that I thought was hilarious. Um, And you'll notice it says Boat, which is in my yearbook and probably very confusing if you don't know. That was my name for many, many years um, from middle school until I got married and Jen kind of was done with it. Um, It's not Boat Kelly, it's just Boat. And here's the weird part. (laughs) There's no story, there's no meaning, there's no significance. It was just a funny name, and I told people to call me that, and they did. And so even in the yearbook, that's what it says. Um, In the football program, just boat, number 55. So uh, I'll tell you a little bit about this guy. He was 17 at the time. Um, senior year, starting left guard on the football team. Um, small school, small town, not many choices, so I got, got the gig. Uh, drummer for a ska band that uh, actually had a record deal and, and uh, did pretty well, won a couple Dove Awards and that sort of thing. Um, that guy loved Jesus, loved music, uh, loved life. And um, living in Philomath as somebody who was kind of skater, punk rocker, musician, um, but also fairly passionate about my faith, um, just to help you understand a little bit more, uh, you know, when you're a senior in high school, they do the voting competitions, like who's most likely to succeed and who has best hair and best dressed. What do you think I won? I appreciate that. It was actually most unique, and I got a picture of that as well from the yearbook. And um, once again, Amanda Dickison and Boat. And uh, they happened to catch me on my lunch break that day wearing what it would appear to be a leather jacket, a metal-framed backpack, and holding a (laughs) 9-iron. And my peers voted me as most unique. Um, My co-winner here, I understand, has since transitioned to become a man. And I like to think that I have as well. So um, this was a long time ago. (laughs) So I'm embarrassed um, in many ways of some of this. Yours aren't any better. If we looked at your picture and some of that stuff, we would all be embarrassed for you as well. But Here's why this is interesting to me um, at the moment. I came across an article this week uh, entitled, Why You Truly Never Leave High School. Okay? Fascinating article, and it's based on some neuro- neurological research that was done uh, four or five years ago. Um, really trying to study the formation of our identities and the significance that those high school or adolescent years hold when it comes to determining how we view ourselves. And so lots of research in the areas of psychology and human development has been done about those like, first three or four years of our life, and we understand how significant those years are in shaping who we become and shaping our lives. But really, this research about youth and the American high school experience is fairly new, relatively new, in that youth is a relatively new experience in, in, uh, in our lives in general. Right? Before World War II, there really wasn't youth culture in America. That's something that came about in the 50s and 60s. Before that, you were a kid, and then you went to work on your family's farm or in a factory or something like that. It kind of went from child to adult. But this adolescent stage is relatively new. And so there is very much, even as I look at those pictures, as I think back to those days, um, and if I'm paying attention, I can start to understand and see how much of my life and identity really were shaped and solidified by those pivotal years between the ages of uh, 15 and 25, but especially 15 to 18, those high school years. And so, so much of how we begin to see ourselves, what we begin to believe to be true about who we are uh, is a product of our high school experience. So um, let me just read a, a little bit of a chunk from this article. Um, and help you see how significant this research actually is. So it says, Not everyone feels the sustained melancholic presence of a high school shadow self. There are some people who simply put in their four years, graduate, and that's that. But for most of us adults, the adolescent years occupy a privileged place in our memories, which to some degree is even quantifiable. Give a grown adult a series of random prompts and and cues, and odds are he or she will recall a disproportionate number of memories from adolescence. This phenomenon even has a name, the reminiscence bump, and it's been found over and over in large population samples, with most studies suggesting that memories from the ages of 15 to 25 are most vividly retained. Okay, so really, really interesting that I, I would assume that for many of us, we kind of resonate with that in terms of our own experience. And we remember much from those kind of four years. And in a lot of ways, kind of the place that we found ourselves or the identity that we assumed uh, during those four years really shaped uh, the direction of our lives. And so it's fascinating, even in the article, they talk about Um, For men, there's been research in the past that would say taller men are more likely to earn more money throughout their lives than shorter men are. And what these guys actually dug up, it wasn't actually the height of the adult male that contributed to to that phenomenon, but it's actually the height of that male in their adolescence. So a taller 15, 16, 17-year-old was actually more likely to earn more money throughout their life than someone who is shorter, even if they caught up to each other later in life. Fascinating stuff, okay? So many of us can go, yeah, I was part of this group, right? I was a punk rocker, I was a jock, I was a brain, I was a princess, I was a whatever they were in your school. Maybe you were a log roller or an axe thrower at mine. Now, why? And just last thing on this article, because I think it's so interesting, but they actually now are learning things about our brain that help us understand why that is, why those four years of high school are so significant. It goes on to say, It turns out that just before adolescence, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that governs our ability to reason, grasp abstractions, control impulses, and self-reflect, undergoes a huge flurry of activity giving young adults the intellectual capacity to form an identity, to develop a notion of self. So any cultural stimuli we are exposed to during puberty, therefore, can make more of an impression because we're now perceiving them discerningly and metacognitively as things to sweep into our self-concepts or to reject. So it's interesting, what they're saying is that because of what's happening in the development of our brain during those years in high school, that our experiences and our preferences and the way that we kind of see ourselves in relationship to the greater social structure actually begins to form a very deep set of beliefs about our identity, about who we are. So for example, if you, um, well, how many of you still enjoy the music you listened to in high school, right? There's no reason that that music back then was better than music today. Some of you object. It's just older. It's just older. That's the only thing that's different. Why do you like that music still? There's actually something in your brain that explains that. So Uh, If I, as the uh, guy I showed you in that picture back then, would say, hey, I like Green Day, right? like this pop punk band. Um, That's a statement of preference. But what was actually happening is that something more accurate would be, I'm the kind of person who likes Green Day. And therefore, the way I dress and my lifestyle and my vocabulary and my community and all that begins to be affected by it. So a simple statement of preference in those adolescent years actually contributes to the formation of an identity, musical taste or otherwise, right? And so <clears throat> here's the point, that the identity we form, according to this article, during our adolescent or formative years has a profound impact on the shape of our lives. And what I would argue is that obviously the Apostle Paul didn't have this body of research to draw from. But I think he had already reached the same conclusion. I think he held as a deep conviction that our behavior flows out of our identity. Or that what we do with our lives flows out of who we think we are that our our identity shapes our actions, our behaviors, and our lifestyle. And so that's incredibly important to understand about Paul when you read sections like we did today, or really this whole back half of the book of Ephesians. There's places where when we read Paul, he kind of sounds really bossy. Sounds like he's giving a whole bunch of rules. Making a whole bunch of commands and saying, well, if you're really a Christian, then you better prove it this way and this way and this way. And if you want to be a good Christian, then you've got to do all this stuff. And at times we read Paul and we're like, ah, he doesn't sound like that fun of a guy. And that doesn't sound like that good of a life. We're actually misreading him if we see him primarily as a rule giver. He does give concrete implications for how the gospel looks when it's lived out on the ground, but it's all done from a place of affirming the identity of the believers and ultimately of the church. And so in the passage we read this morning, there's a few things where he said, I want you to do this, and you should be doing this, and this should be happening. But if you're paying attention, you'll notice that all of these commands are given in the context of him affirming an identity. Not just saying, this is what you should do, but reminding these people again and again, this is who you are. Because our identity shapes our life. And so, in attempt to try to communicate a vibrant and compelling uh, vision of identity to these early church communities, which now extends to us as well, Paul uses several metaphors throughout this book to say here's who you are. At one point he talks about the church is the family of God. That if God is my father and God is your father then what does that make us? That makes us brothers and sisters. And so Christianity by design and by definition from the very beginning has always been a team sport. It's never something that we can do or we're meant to do individually or on our own in isolation. That it's a familial calling. That we are now part of the family of God and therefore we're related to each other whether we like it or not. Okay. So he uses that metaphor to affirm an identity of family. He uses the metaphor of a house, that we are the house of God. And that we're like each different bricks that are kind of being built together in order to form this dwelling place for God's spirit. A beautiful picture. Uh, at one point when he's talking about marriage, he goes, <clears throat> you, the church, you're actually the bride of Christ. You're Jesus' bride. The one who he loves. The one who he cherishes. The one who he serves. The one who he, he's responsible for you if you'll let him be. And so uh, this identity of being a bride, it's not just saying do a bunch of stuff. This is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. In today's passage, the metaphor that he uses is what? Who are we? Four times in these 16 verses, he refers to the church as a body. And specifically as the body of Christ. And so 12 times throughout these six chapters, Paul uses the language of a body to refer to the church's identity. And specifically in this chunk, he fleshes out some of what that means and some of what that looks like. And so... Let's talk about this metaphor for our identity as the people of God, as the church of Jesus, that we are a body, and more specifically, the body of Christ. What an interesting metaphor. That's familiar language to most of us that have been around the church for any length of time. But let's pause for a moment and actually think about what what is he really trying to communicate? And if that's true, if that's true, how would that change the way we think about ourselves and the way we function? So the first thing I'd say is that to call the church the body of Jesus is an incredibly high view of the church, that Paul is trying to think of language or a metaphor that really elevates the church's identity, not allows it to be something that's sort of an afterthought or a plan B or something like that. He's going, no, this is how important and central you are to Jesus. Like if he's the head, you are his body. Paul has this incredibly high view of the church. That we are actually part of who Jesus is. Now what's interesting is, do you remember how Jesus first introduced himself to Paul? It's on that road to Damascus story, right? And at the time, Paul was Saul. And he was somebody who was a fierce opponent of the church, of the early communities of Christ followers, so much so that he was terrorizing them. And he was persecuting them and having them put to death. Paul hated, or Saul at the time hated the church. And his life mission was to eliminate Christ followers from the face of the earth. And then Jesus shows up to him supernaturally And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You would think he would say, why are you persecuting these Christians? Why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting these people? Jesus goes, no, why are you persecuting me? That's how Paul is introduced to the person of Jesus and this thing called the church. That in Jesus' mind, what is done to his people is done to him. Like if you punch his arm, you're not just punching his arm, you're punching him. Jesus says, these people, this thing, is part of who I am. And so Paul grabs onto that. And all these metaphors and the way that he writes and the way that he preaches, the way that he leads, the way that he speaks comes from this place of the church is a really big deal to Jesus, really sacred, really integral to Jesus' own identity and to his mission in the way that he's chosen to carry out this new kingdom on earth. And so the truth is, I don't Actually, no, we don't really know why God has chosen to work the, the, the work of Christ through us as the church. He could have chosen to bring about the reconciliation of all things a million different ways. And in fact, I bet there's some of us that are frustrated that we don't see God showing up himself in, in the world. Right? We often wonder, God, why don't you show up? Why don't you intervene? Why don't you do something? Why don't you fix that? Why didn't you prevent that? Like, God, we know you can, and we're frustrated at times. Like, where are you? And the reality is that for the most part, God has chosen to do his work, not directly, but through the church. That's how God has chosen to work in the world. And we don't exactly know why, but this seems to be the case. C.S. Lewis said it like this, for he seems to do nothing of himself, talking about Jesus, of which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly but blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. And so this is part of the mystery of Jesus and his gospel that we wrestle with. That apparently... God has chosen to accomplish his purposes on earth to carry out his mission of restoration primarily through this ragtag group of people we call the church. And so that's why Paul starts this section in chapter 4 by saying, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is the calling the church has received? It's to be the ones through whom Jesus does his work. To be the ministers of reconciliation in the world. To be his sent ones, or those that live on his mission, participate in what he's up to. That is the calling, to continue on the life, the work, the ministry, and the vision of Christ. And so the metaphor of a a head and a body, Jesus is the head. He's got this vision. He's got this plan. He's got this mission that he's on. And all of that can stay in your head. We all know what that feels like. Like, I've got great plans and ideas. But at some point, your body has to follow your head. At some point, you have to be activated and mobilized. You can't just think new reality into existence. It's actually something that has to be fleshed out in your body. And that's what Jesus says. That's the arrangement, which is an incredibly uncomfortably high view of the church. We'd rather just be fans of Christ. We'd rather just wear Christian t-shirts and listen to Christian radio and feel good about it. And he's going, no, that's not enough. You are my body. You are body are the ones who get to live my life and bear my image in the world. And if you don't, it's not going to happen. Of course he could, but he's chosen for us to be his people in the world. And so there's a lot we could say about what it means to be the body of Christ. But in this passage specifically, Paul lays out two defining marks of a healthy expression of Christ's body. And he goes, as you live out this calling, as you pursue living out of this identity as Christ's body, there's really two things that are going to emerge, two marks that will help you see where you are in that process. And the first is unity, and the second is maturity. Paul's vision is that as the body of Christ, the church would be unified, and secondly, that the church would be growing in maturity, okay? So when we talk about the unity of the body, this is something, some, a, f- a concept many of us are already familiar with, that when you think about even a human physical body, it's made up of many different parts, right? Thousands or hundreds, I don't know, millions, like we got lots of different parts that make up our bodies, And some are visible, some are invisible. Some you can't live without, and some you'd rather have, but you'll be okay without. Uh, But the idea is that there is one body made up of many different parts. And so that each part is distinct in its appearance, in its form, in its function, in its purpose. But every part is vital for the health of the whole. And so most of the time when we think about unity, and even when we use the phrase community, a common unity, a group of people that are united, uh, I'm convinced that culturally we're really talking about affinity. We're really talking about uniformity. Most of the time our vision for unity or our experience of community is a whole bunch of people just like us that are getting along and having a great time together. People from the same background, people of the same uh, race or ethnicity, people of the same worldview or religion, people that like the same bands or the same team or something like that. We have all different expressions of what we call community around Bend. And that's not actually what Paul's talking about. Find a whole bunch of people that like the same stuff as you do and be friends. His vision, is the kind of community that would be impossible without the bloody cross and the empty tomb. A kind of people that would never get along in the wild, that are brothers and sisters in the family of God. A kind of people who, if it were up to them, would never choose each other, but they have been chosen for each other. He's talking about a unity that's not uniformity or affinity, but is a true, supernatural, inclusive, diverse, multi-as-possible-everything community. And again, in Ephesians, it's the context of Jews and Gentiles becoming one body, becoming one people. Okay? Now, why does that matter? To our identity, not just unity is now something to go and do, but he's going, no, if you're the body of Christ, you have to live in unity with each other. He says it here in verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And again, down in verse 12, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. It's going, if you're going to live out your identity as the body of Christ, then unity is central. Why? Well, because God himself exists as a unified whole. That God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, distinct persons, with unique roles and relationships within the Godhead and within the story of creation and redemption, God himself exists in true, authentic, life-giving, sacrificial, joyful unity. If that's the way God is, then we, as the people of God, bear his image and live in tune with ultimate reality when we pursue unity. When we are committed to sharing life deeply with one another. Even if it's people that we have a hard time with, even if it's people we struggle with, even if it's people we wouldn't have chosen all the more reason to pursue the kind of unity that only Jesus can bring about. And so unity isn't just the absence of conflict. Like, hey, there's nobody I'm mad at. We're cool. He's talking about a spiritual oneness, power to unite a people into something that the world has never seen. A people who are actively pursuing unity, actively loving one another, serving one another, fostering deep, significant, Christ-centered relationships with each other. Getting involved in each other's lives, even if that means speaking to, to one another in a way that looks like hard conversations or, or whatever it looks like. Unity isn't just, yeah, I think we're all cool. It's like, no, this active, spiritually powerful, we know each other, we love each other. We're in this together. If we're going to be the body of Christ, then we have to pursue unity. God is united. And this is the kind of thing that the world desperately needs. So, that kind of unity really goes hand in hand with this other mark of a healthy expression of Christ's body that Paul talks about, which is maturity. Unity and maturity. And so the idea of maturity is that Jesus has a vision for his body. It's still January, so some of you maybe have a vision for your body that you're pursuing this year, right? By the end of the year, I want to weigh this much or look like this or fit into those pants or something like that. We know what that is to say, here's the body I want. Here's what I want to look like. Here's my vision. Jesus actually has a vision for his body. He has hopes and dreams and I would even argue prayers for us. That we, even this year, would grow more into the people that he dreams for us to be. That we would be more conformed to his image. That we would understand his heart and his mind. That his vision would become our vision. This relationship between head and body would be strengthened that we would be more united to Him, more connected to Him, more devoted to being those who live out His mission and bear His image in the world. Jesus has a vision for His body. And we want to pay attention as closely as we can to what that vision is. Who are we, and what is God calling us to do as those that are connected? and growing into Jesus. And so this is one of the reasons, in Paul's mind, that the church exists. This is why we're here, to help one another grow into maturity in our faith and knowledge of God. We could try to do that on our own, and Paul's saying, yeah, but you're part of a body. You're part of a family. You're part of a household. You were never meant to just go and try to grow in your faith all by yourself in isolation. He's saying this whole thing was meant to work together. As we, together, in verse 15, grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. And so... We'll talk about this more in the weeks and months to come, but we're in an interesting season of transition as a a community. And as a church, we more than maybe we ever have, are in a place where we need to pay attention to what Jesus is calling us to. Being reminded of our identity in Him, as participants in the life of the Trinity, But also then being available and teachable and humble, as he says in the beginning, ready to go wherever he's calling us to go, do whatever he's calling us to do at any cost. So getting rid of comfort and familiarity, which transition always brings about change, and change always brings about a sense of loss, and loss brings a sense of pain, In this season of pain and loss, our hope isn't to get back to the way things used to be. Our hope is, Jesus, where are you taking us next? What are you saying to us and about us today? Who are you calling us to be and what are you calling us to do in the lives of one another, in the lives of men, in the lives of those around the world? We know that maturity is all about transition. That we graduate and we celebrate that that dude isn't who I still am, right? I've moved on, I've grown, I've matured, and so have you and so are we as a church. And so as much as it's painful and uncomfortable and a little bit scary our hope is that Jesus is committed to his mission of forming people who look like him. And Jesus is committed to his vision of what he wants his body to look like. And I don't know about you, I don't want to go against that vision, I want to cooperate with it. And I want to be part of what he's doing here. So, these two marks... of of a healthy expression of Christ's body, of a healthy church. Unity and maturity. Now here's the thing that makes it all work, or in other words, here's what Jesus is committed to doing in order to bring about his vision for his body. And Paul spends a little bit of a chunk here in verses 9 through 13 saying, this isn't just up to us. And again, the gospel isn't we try really hard to do good stuff for God. The gospel is who God is and what he's done for us. And so Jesus is committed to gifting the church with everything she needs to be who he's called her to be and do what he's called her to do. And so Paul talks about after Jesus' resurrection, and he spends 40 days speaking about the kingdom of God to an early community of of disciples and followers, and then the ascension takes place. And there is now, what we understand the significance of the ascension to be is that there is now a human being in heaven who sits at the right hand of God in perfect communion with the Father. And we are in him, that the relationship Jesus enjoys in the heavenly realms with the Father in the present tense, that we are now participants within that relationship, that not only is he your Father and your Father and your Father and my Father, but Jesus' Father has become our Father. And so he gives us this identity, not just, not just as his body, as powerful as that is, but we are actually in him, connected to him, part of who he is. And as he ascends, Paul says, that he sends the Spirit and he gives gifts. So that when he says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age, he means that in a very real sense. That yes, through the gift of the person of the Spirit. But also, look in verse 11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. So the ascended Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father, whose identity is given to us, in his grace and in his generosity, in his wisdom and in his faithfulness, he gives gifts to the church. And those gifts are people. Those gifts are people. People that he has wired in a certain way. People who he's built in to their personality and to their skill set. A certain set of gifts and strengths and competencies. And he says Jesus is going to be faithful to lead his church through the gift of these various kinds of people. He lists five. Walk through them very quickly. Some people make a big deal about this and try to turn it into like some sort of personality test, like it's the new Enneagram or something like that. Um, but real quickly, he he. he describes these five kinds of wiring or gifting. The apostolic, which is those that are wired to pioneer, to innovate, to activate. It's those that kind of express the heart of God and the eternal purposes and mission of God through launching and imagining and activating new kingdom works. Which, by the way, let me just pause for a moment. These are gifts, not titles. Some of you may come from a church background that uses some of this language more often than we do, and it weirds you out. And if you've met somebody that goes around claiming, yeah, I'm an apostle or I'm a prophet, um, I don't hang out with those people, and I don't think you should either. These are (laughs) giftings. That should weird you out. These are giftings, and so... They're giftings that bear the image of God or that call forth certain aspects of God's character and devotion to his mission. And so that's the apostolic, the launching new works, seeing new visions of kingdom initiatives expanding. Uh, In Ken Weitzma, God has gifted us with an apostolic leader. Right, Launches a church, launches a conference, launches a college, Right? His entire wiring is what's next, what's new, how do we innovate. Wrote a book on creativity. Right? Love it. Now again, if we wanted to call him Apostle Ken, he wouldn't answer, and, uh, and that's a good thing. But I think that's how God's wired him. The prophetic expresses the holy and covenantal heart of God through discerning, through integrating, through truth-telling. By paying attention to what's happening both within the church and within the world and saying, this is how things are supposed to be. And oftentimes it has to do with confronting or challenging uh, or speaking truth to power. Okay? So this is a tricky one because a lot of times people say, you know, I had to say that because I was just being prophetic. You're actually just being mean. You're actually just being arrogant. And there's a big difference here. The prophets that God gives to his church are those that express the holy, covenantal heart of God. There's the evangelistic gifting, the announcing, the inviting, the including, those who express the saving mercy of God by by proclaiming, by telling, by wanting to invite everyone to be part of his family. Those with evangelistic wiring or gifting, their hearts break for the lost sons and daughters of God. And they just need to show and to tell that good news to as many people as they, have, they can. The pastoral or the shepherding, this is the, those that express the loving commitment or the loving communal embrace of God. God's heart of caring, of healing, of restoring That imagery of a shepherd, a good shepherd, who's patient, who walks with his sheep, who brings about their healing when they've been hurt or when they've been damaged. And then finally, this teaching gift. Those that express the infinite truth and wisdom of God through understanding, through explaining, through educating. Again, in Ken, we've had an incredible gifted teacher from God and we celebrate. <clears throat> now, there's lots and lots of different ways that we could say, yeah, what does it look like for these five different giftings or callings um, or set of strengths to play themselves out? Some of you look at that list and like, yeah, I do. I see myself there. And some of you are going, I, I'm not sure. None of them sound like me. Um, and, and that's okay. But the Here's my confidence, not that you need to go choose one of these to go, to try to do, it's that Jesus is committed and faithful to giving his church everything she needs. That he's committed to creating a well-rounded, healthy, mature body. And this is how he does it. By calling people of different wirings and different personalities and different gifts to encourage each other and to build each other up. And so as Jesus ascends into heaven, he builds his church by giving people as gifts to one another and to the world to continue on his work on earth in a million different ways. And so what happens when an entire community of Christ followers has their identity rooted in Jesus? And what happens when those in that community of Christ followers have their unique gifts and wirings and personalities affirmed and empowered? What happens when we truly move towards a unity that isn't uniformity, that says you don't have to look like that or be gifted like that in order to play a valuable part in the story of God's redemption, but God wants to work out his purposes through you. Jesus wants to live his life through yours. What What would that look like? I would argue that church would become a compelling preview of God's coming kingdom that the world is longing to see. Let me share with you one last quote, and we'll come to the table. Throughout his ministry, Jesus showed what the kingdom of God was all about. By loving outcasts, befriending the oppressed, healing the sick, cleansing the lepers, caring for the poor, driving out demons, forgiving sins, and so forth. And if you peel back his miracles, the common denominator underneath them all is that he was alleviating human suffering and showing what the future kingdom of God looks like. See, when Jesus did his miracles, he was indicating that he was reversing the effects of the curse. In Jesus' ministry, a bit more of the future had penetrated the present. Jesus embodied the future kingdom of God where human suffering will be eradicated. And there will be peace, justice, freedom, and joy. The church, which is his body in the world, carries on this ministry. It stands on the earth as a sign of the coming kingdom. The church lives and acts in the reality that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the world today. It lives in the presence of the future, in the already but not yet of the kingdom of God. For this reason, the church is commissioned to proclaim and embody the kingdom now, to bring a bit of the new creation into the old creation, to bring a piece of heaven into the earth, demonstrating to the world what it will look like when God is calling the shots. In the life of the church, God's future has already begun. What What a beautiful vision of what it looks like when the church receives her identity as the body of Christ. And Paul's final vision in verse 16, that the whole body is joined together, held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So what part is God calling you to play? What is your role within the life of this church in the way that we would relate to one another, in the way that we would live out the mission of Jesus in our city and around the world? How is God uniquely wired and gifted and calling you to be part of it? And how do we do that together? I don't know the answer for each of you individually, but I know that collectively, There's one other thing we know about Christ's body. His physical body. That in order to give life to the world, his body had to be broken. His blood had to be shed. And it meant he was going to die so that the world could live. And for us, to be the body of Christ means the same thing. That we're going to have to die. To our selfishness. To comfort. To familiarity. And that may sound bad, but for most Christians throughout the world today and throughout history... Having to die looked a lot worse than that. And that's maybe where Jesus would call us. To break ourselves open, to pour ourselves out for the healing of the world. And so we come to the table every week. We offer the bread and the cup, the body and the blood of Christ to be reminded of our identity as those who are his body and through us his blood would flow. That we need his power, we need his life, we need his spirit, we need his intimate relationship with the Father because we can't do this on our own. And we will fail and we'll get it wrong and week after week we come And say, being the body of Christ is not primarily about all the stuff we are doing for Jesus. It's primarily about what Jesus has done for us. He has given us his life. He gives us his very body. He gives us his blood. So we can go forth in the world with hope, with faithfulness, with conviction to live out this identity and to be his people. Will you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are your church. Our allegiance isn't primarily to any man, to any pastor, to any leader, or anything else. Our allegiance and our identity is found in you. Thank you so much for making us one with yourself, for including us in your life, for uniting us to Yourself, for bringing us to the Father, for filling us with Your Spirit. God, we desperately want to know and be part of what You're doing in the world. We want to see Your vision for this body come to fruition. And so we, as we enter a time of transition, a season of change and question and loss and pain, in this moment, amongst all the things we're feeling, we offer ourselves to you once again. We give our lives away. We trust in who you are and what you've done. That you are enough and that you are enough for us. And so we come to you this morning hungry and thirsty. We want more of you, more of your life, more of your heart, more of your love, more of your truth, not just to go one in one ear and out the other, but to sink deep within our hearts. Not just to modify our behavior, but to actually bring about this whole new identity. Thank you. Thank you for who you are, what you've done, and that we get to be part of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.